0: Mind, uh, go ahead and uh, turn to your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 17. Uh, I don't know how Seth was able to do it, but uh, he was able to cram it all on the first page of your worship guide. So if you don't have a Bibles, just know, or if you don't have a Bible, just know that your passage is there, printed on the front portion of your worship guide, so you can use that. Uh, also, if you like to doodle and circle and underline and do those types of things and don't want to underline or scar up your scriptures, uh, just know that we've given you uh, one of the, for those tactile of, among you, you have a worship guide. All right, so we are coming to an end of Outward. This is our last week, our last teaching week. Next week, we will have the kids on stage, and they're going to be doing kind of their reenactment of Paul's second missionary journey. So this will be our last teaching of this, of this uh, summer series called Outward because what we've been wanting all of our people to do, I think it's going to happen. What we, what we want is what we've talked to Ashley about is this idea, idea that we want to go away from the center. Like that, what we see is that Christianity started in Jerusalem and it just continued to grow. And the second kind of pod, you had Jerusalem, the second one, uh, pod was Antioch, and in both cases, it had this outward movement the church at jerusalem just continued to grow outward and then when the second sub in antioch antioch started to grow and send out and so what we are trying to do as a congregation is to move our people out of their seats on sunday morning so that we are away from center where we are living and out Word life, okay? This is where we've been for eight weeks. Hopefully something has dropped in to your heart so you're able to say am I more inward or am I more inclusive versus outward and trying, um, um, trying to live that way. We also have, and the kids are doing this as well, we also have a memory verse. Hopefully you've been holding on to this verse. Maybe, kinda, sorta. I'm not going to have you raise your hands whether you've memorized this passage or not. All right, but this has been, uh, we won't call it a memory verse. We'll just call it a, a key verse if you haven't memorized it. All right, we'll call it a key verse. This is Acts 18. It says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Now I've highlighted a couple of things for us to kind of hold on to. He says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And this is where the outwardness of the series comes into play. Is the idea is that we are to continue to go on speaking. We're continue to go, have our words project out. Do not be silent. If we're going to be missionaries, if we're going to be gospel proclaimers, these things have to be true of us. There has to be a speaking component and a, like a non-zipper mouth component. Now, there's a time to speak and a time to listen, those kinds of things. But as a missionary, we have good news, meaning that we have something to tell. That means that we are heralds of something. So go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you, um, because this is where Paul is. Actually, the Lord is actually protecting him. And he says, um, no one will attack or harm you. And here it is, for I have many in this city who are my people. These are the moments that we want for you to understand, to go on speaking, to not be silent with this idea that there are many people in our city that want to and need to hear the good news of God. And just to piggyback on what Ashley says, these people have been been sold a different bill of goods. Maybe a bad bill of goods about who Christ is and what God is. And so as he has indwelled us with the power of the gospel, our job is to go on speaking, to not be silent, for we have many in this city. Uh, yesterday was a big day for America, right? Not that 4th of July wasn't big enough, right? But we had a big day yesterday. We celebrated 50 years of landing on the moon, everybody. Come on, America, America. Nottingham cannot claim that, Ashley. Mm-hmm. That's Marka, Rapha. Right all right. So, no, with all, that's a big deal. We lean on the moon. We have moon dust on our shoes. That's good stuff. So 50 years. And so we've been looking at pictures and hearing stories. However, there is a story that caught my attention this week that I did not know. Not only was yesterday 50 years that we've landed on the moon, but yesterday was 50 years of man landing on the moon and the first time that communion was taken lunarly. So did you know that when they got on the moon, Buzz Aldrin looks to Neil Armstrong and says, hey, there's something I would like to do. And so he speaks into um, the the microphone and he encourages everyone who's listening to take a moment and reflect on something that's transcendent. And so Buzz uh, Aldrin He pauses and he unzips his little zipper or whatever. And he has a little chalice of of, of white wine, I believe, and a little wafer. And he takes communion there, like the first thing to do on the moon, and they take communion. And then over the microphone, he reads John 15 that's amazing. And so I continued to dig. I'm like, wow, this is great. Uh, the quote was, um, he was an elder of uh, a church in Houston. And he says, um, I've been talking with the pastor of my church. And I said, I'd been struggling to find the right symbol for the first lunar landing. We wanted to express our feelings that man was doing uh, what man was doing in this mission transcended electronics, computers, and rockets. That's a great quote, y'all. That's amazing. So we continued to dig, and then a year and a half before Apollo, what, eleven? There was Apollo eight. All right, so eighteen months prior that Apollo eight was orbiting the moon for the very first time. And so this was an, an amazing moment where they, we are looking and we are circling the moon for the f- very first time. As they are in orbit of the moon, the Apollo 8 comes over the radio and tells the audience, like, hey, we are now circling um, the, the globe. And we have something to share with everyone. So they clear their throats. There's three of them. They clear their throats and they begin to read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And they just continue. And they fill like four minutes of space. They were said that at that moment that there were more people listening, had their radio wave attention than any other time on planet Earth. And so how did they fill the space? And so in both the Apollo 8 and the Apollo 11 um, journeys, in both of these monumentous occasions, what did they do? Somehow, some way, the three guys in the Apollo Eight—Buzz Aldrin and the eleven—somehow, some way, they thought to themselves and they said, "I've got to say something. I can't be silent because there are many people listening to me." And what we're trying to do for us in this—the uh, whole summer was to try to get you to contemplate this kind of movement. We can read Paul and we can all get overwhelmed, like there's no way that I'll ever become the Apostle Paul. And yet here we have two pretty modern day, like no one's ever been or circled the moon. And yet they used each of those moments to give glory to God and point to his grandeur. How many of you, how many of us have you or I considered the influence that we have on others? So much so that we are convicted, right? And we are convinced that when we're given a platform, that we should say something to glorify God, to bring his name higher. It's not to us, O oh Lord, it's not to us, but to his name be the glory to all of this earth. That's the challenge this morning. The challenge this morning is for us to just simply, as the Acts 18 passage tells us, is simply to just to keep on speaking. Can y'all say that? Just to keep on speaking, right? Just to keep on speaking. This passage that we're gonna read today, this is the, the, the ending passage of our series. This passage will prompt us on how we are to do or what we're to say if we're actually going to speak. So how are we going to do this? We're going to speak. The first thing we're going to see is that we're going to speak inside the culture. We're going to look at Paul. We're going to see that he has immersed himself in a pretty influential town. So we just need to realize that um, we can't speak outside of realms. We actually got to be inside the culture. That's important. The second thing we'll, we'll see is that um, we're speaking, right, on God's behalf, but we're actually talking to real people. And I know that's just a very simple statement, but oftentimes missionaries can get a bad rap because they only just dump information and they forget there's real people inside real cultures. And so you have to adapt, contextualize is the official word. The third thing we'll do is that what are we going to keep on speaking? All right, we're going to keep speaking about God over and over and over again. So this is kind of baseline humanitarian. Where we just, we, just, we just talk, we interact, we, um, uh, we, that we incarnate with people. And from here down, it's just this idea that when we speak, we can't just be buddy-buddy with folks. We actually have to give people information of something that doesn't belong to us. We have to speak, keep speaking about God, and of course, we have to speak about salvation. And I'm going to try to do all that really quickly. All right, so we're going to keep on speaking inside culture. Um, whoop, let's not do that. Yeah, all right, so let's read first. Okay, so we are in Acts chapter 17, verse 16 and following. Now, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so this, we have finally arrived in Athens. We're 220 miles from from Berea, all right? And so he's had a long journey, but he lands here in, uh, in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. And in the same way that we see in Thessalonica and Berea, the first thing he does is, so he goes into and he reasons in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons. Now, this is where he breaks just a little bit in that um, he also... Uh, obviously reasons, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. We see that he's both engaging the religious, but now he's engaging the secular. Verse 18 says, Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others say, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. That is because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you, are bring, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Verse 21. Says now, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So here we have uh, uh, Paul, and he is in Athens, and Athens was and still is, as one scholar's put it, um, Athens is probably one of the most influential cities of the world. One scholar said there's been no one city that's had more influence on us as a culture than um, Athens itself. This is the place, of course, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and, 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 and uh, Plutarch and all of these kinds of things happen there. It's known for its art, its culture, its architect. There's poets, there's writers. I mean, just this over and over and over. It's one of the, uh, the seven wonders of the world. This is, uh, this is the Parthenon, all right? Look at, I mean, just even now in the year 2019, it still looks amazing. And this thing has been sitting like that, destroyed for, for thousands of years. It actually got bombed, all right? And it's still standing. This thing is amazing. Athens is one of those places where just everybody wants to visit and everybody wants to go and see. Now, Paul was waiting, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, instead of looking at the Parthenon, right, and instead of walking the streets and just seeing all the grandeur, what does it say? His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. This place was amazing and you could tell it really was. I mean, just a feat, one of the one greatest wonders of the world. I mean, it's, it's a really great place. One of the greatest things that it had to give to society was this idea that all of these ruins and all of these structures were actually temples to pagans. And so as Paul walked, he would actually be provoked within him that this is just not right. And so, um, we see all kinds of things happen there. You see that this idea of, of the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the Areopagus, this is the, uh, the pantheon there, and this is, um, the, these are just ruins and all kinds of stuff. It's just really, really amazing. But it's set up on a hill, and that's what is called Mars Hill or, or the Areopagus, those kinds of things. So you just need to know that this place truly was an iconic place. What Paul does as a missionary was not to see how iconic it was, but instead his heart was provoked. His heart was stirred. Instead of seeing the things that people elevated, he saw hearts that was truly broken besides him. And what do we see? We see that Paul was waiting in Athens and as he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and here's verse 17, and he also does this in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul was engaged, not only just in Athens, right? And just being blown away at at those types of things, but he was actually in the middle of the city. He was inside the culture. As we step in, we need to realize that as Paul, yes, at a large level, but he also got down in the streets and he talked at the market level. And he went to a place called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was known for all kinds of things, right? First and foremost, as you see here, that he went there in verse 19 and he took him and brought him to the Areopagus. We're not real sure where uh, this is. We know that this is probably down here or up here, this is kind of what the Areopagus is. And so you don't need to know a whole lot other than it was a place of honor and it was a place where people wanted to go. And Paul, because of what he was able to say in the marketplace, was actually able to be dispatched to one of these places of honor. And here he stood, right, in the marketplace and then also in the Areopagus. And he was in front of 30 of the world's brightest people. Paul had an, art, uh, an audience, both on the streets, right, and on the university, and he, and he was able to go back and forth between these two art, uh, audiences. As missionaries, as we are to keep on speaking, the question is, where should we be? And we need to be where the people are, and the people are in the streets, and then they're also trying to have an understanding or reasoning. And so this is where we need to be. So we need to keep on speaking to our culture. But we also need to understand that there are real people that, that with real questions. Notice if you go back to 18, it says, Now some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, What does this babbler say? Another says, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So this that's when they brought him to the Areopagus. So we don't just talk to people inside the culture and inside the context, but we really are. Are talking to real people who may be Epicurean, or real people that may be Stoic, or real people that are actually inside the Areopagus. And so we see here, and we don't have to spend a ton of time wondering what an Epicurean is or a Stoic is here uh, in, in verse 18, but you need to realize that the real people have real questions. These are the leading kind of worldviews in modern day the Epicureans, uh, just for your notes, they're kind of free will people. Everything was by chance. Um, they felt no real responsibility for much. Their basic e- ethic was to eat, drink, and be merry. So they leaned on a life that, is, that leaned toward delight or comfort, right, or pleasure, or passion. Some of us lean that way. If you lean that way, you're more you're more of an epicurean. Then there's the stoics, right? These are totally opposite. Stoic literally means porch or porch talk. And they leaned toward reason and rational thought. They thought that the main goal of mankind was duty or virtue or self-sufficiency or honor. And they were suspicious of the desire side, but instead, they leaned toward reason and logic. Or to put it another way, is they lean toward duty. So you've got two camps here one delight and one duty. For some of us, if you just looked at the year 2019, most of us would lean one way or the other. The reason you live your life is either rational and logical and kind of black and white. Or some of you have discarded that altogether and said there's no rules at all. And I just want to live for my desires and my passions and those types of things. Maybe just maybe we haven't evolved the way that we thought we would have. Maybe we really are just delight seekers or duty seekers even today. I would encourage you to think about just your bent of your heart. Which way it would would, um, lean. You possibly would be an Epicurean or a Stoic. The reason that's important is because if humanity leans one way or the other, even today, what Paul is walking into is he's talking to a worldview, but he's talking to your heart and he's he's talking to my heart and he's saying, I have some answers for real people. As we speak and as we engage and as we are missionaries, we need to realize that people have a worldview and they really are seeing things differently and we're talking to real people with real questions. And these people um, these people um, are likely to insult you. What does this babbler say? He must be a, f- a preacher of, div- of foreign divinities. He's teaching something new. You're bringing some strange things to us. And then in verse 32, others mocked. As you engage and you start pressing in on people's real bents with real questions, just know that there will likely be insults or pushback from you. As you keep on speaking, just know that there is going to be some pushback as well. And here's where for you and I, we need to realize that there are really no such things as a secular person. Because this scripture tells us that no matter how secular people get, we are all worshipers. You will never meet another person on planet earth that is void of all spirituality. Even the, 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 the harshest atheist or agnostic, they still worship something. They may not call it God or a God, but they are all worshipers. Worshipers is simply to put your delight or your affections towards something, to give something the most importance to you. You see this in the very first verse that we read that Paul was waiting in Athens and his spirit was provoked. Why? Because he saw that the city was full of idols. And what do you do with idols? You worship to them. You drop all the way down to verse 22 and it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Don't let people fake you out. In 2019, people want to dismiss religion because it's just old, you know, for the old folks or something like this. In the heart of every person is a worshiping heart. It's just the object of their worship that matters. It may not be God supreme, but their heart, they have given their heart, we have all given our heart to something or to someone. We are all very, very religious. And so the gospel's aim is to bring glory to God for us to look at our people, right? And to look at these worshipers and not just to make them worship or to invite them to worship. Why? Because they're already doing that. And instead, we are to turn their worship toward the God of all creation and the God of all glory. That's the difference. It's not a worship problem. It's never a worship problem. It's the object of their worship. That's where it comes into play. The gospel is good news because the good news tells us that we are to give glory to God alone. And yet for you and I, we hold back from that worship. We hold back. And when we do that, we rob God of his glory. That's the reason we're on mission. Because your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your families they all are robbing god of his glory and giving that worship to another person or another thing and our job is to redirect them to something beautiful more beautiful than anything that they've ever ever seen and that's why missions takes place because right now your friends and your families and coworkers they're worshiping. They don't have a worshiping problem. They have an object of their affection. That's the problem. And so what do we do? What do we see? Not only uh, are we talking inside of a culture to real people, but this is really where um, Paul starts to make, make his case. Because the, yes, they are to keep on speaking, but they are to, he is to, we are to speak about God himself. Verse 22 and following says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breadth and everything. So how does Paul start to engage with the smartest people on planet earth? He starts where the Bible starts. He starts with God being the creator God. In the beginning, God, Genesis tells us, and this is exactly where Paul starts. He starts with this idea of, hey, I've noticed that you have an unknown God. And so there's this question in your heart that maybe, just maybe, I have missed something. Just know that no matter how much success that you have, no matter how, like, how tall the ladder you climb, there will always be in the human heart this, this tinge of discontentment that they, they have missed something. Unless the human heart is confronted with the gospel itself, it will always be an incomplete heart. And so what Paul is doing is he is reasoning and say, hey, you are self admittance You said that there is an unknown God. The cardinal sin in Athens was to not know something. That's why it was the smartest place on the planet because they had already answered all of the questions. And yet with this one little inscription, I can tell that you have an unknown God. Paul finds his way into the human heart. As missionaries, as we're talking to real people, we actually have to start seeing where the gaps are. And then he comes full-fledged and he says, I want to introduce you to someone. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. This is my favorite It says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this is what I proclaim to you. As a missionary, as we continue to speak, when we find the gap, the only thing that needs to fill that gap is God and God alone. It's more than your personality, it's more than an after school program, it's more than a well in Africa. It's God and God alone. So much so that the gospel, the end of the gospel message is not the salvation of our souls. The end of the gospel message is the glory of God himself who brings salvation. You see the difference? What what Paul does is he begins with God and God alone. And he comes out and he starts where, where we start, is that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. He is the creator God. He doesn't live in temples. He's not served by human hands. God doesn't need anything. He is self-existent. He's not been dependent on anything. So when you think of the Stoics or when you think about the Epicureans and how they lived their life and why the Pantheon and all of these other monuments were is because their gods had to be served. Their gods were often distant. But what, God is, what Paul is saying is that you need to understand that the one true God, the creator God, doesn't need us. Instead, he started it all. The baseline of our gospel message is that God is self-sufficient. And it's no, not this idea that God will reward me if, or God will punish me if. Instead, it's simply God is God and he started it all in motion. So he says that uh, he has made the world and everything in it, the heavens and the earth. He does not live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. But instead, and this is where he turns, he turns from the creator God. He then turns and he says, because he has given all mankind life and breadth and anything and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having uh, determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul shifts the argument and he moves from this creator God, the one that has started everything, to this idea that he is providential. That he is actually very intimate in his, in his um, dealings with mankind. The Athenians knew nothing of a creator God, and they really had no idea what it meant for someone to be providential. This idea. That it's not just what you worship, it's who. And this who you worship actually wants to get to know us. And he's the one who's giving you breadth and everything in it. And that it's God who has allotted the times and the places that we live and breathe. All that is given credit to God himself. What Paul is setting up and what we should learn from him is this, this providential God who cares for us. He's carved out this moment in time for these very words. He says we either trust him or we don't. We either want to move outside of this boundary or we feel more comfortable inside of it. God is our creator and he's also very providential that he has his hand on humanity. The very first sin that we commit is when we don't give God credit for being God and we dismiss him as creator or having the authority in our life. That's what happened to Adam and that's what happened to Eve. But instead, at some point in our life, maybe this morning is a good morning for you, we have to then look and say, it is our job as we seek God and feel our way toward him that we find him, that God himself can be found. God's providence over all of humanity and then also our responsibility to understand him and love him fully. And so we speak into culture. We speak to real people. We speak about God And then we keep on speaking about the most glorious news of all, about the person and work of Jesus himself. This is where Paul ends, and this is where we end. This is where we start. This is where we end. This is the final enunciation is about salvation. This idea that on us, we should seek after God and that we should find him. Verse 28 because in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, Paul said, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or the image formed by the art and imagination of man. Did you see the Parthenon? Did you see just how amazing that was? Paul is pointing and pointing there and there and there and says, this is not where you're going to find God. This is not him. Verse 30 says, the times of ignorance of, uh, sorry, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, like right now, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. When we we're missionaries and we start the plan of salvation and we start talking about what God has done, the place that we start is where Paul started. The place that we start is where Jesus starts. He says the kingdom of God is near, repent, right? The kingdom of God is here. So we start where, where Paul and Jesus would start and John the Baptist would start is the idea that our heart is going this way and our worship is going this way. And the word for repentance is simply to turn around and to give affection to another place or another thing. And so for you and I to know that we are to call people back toward an allegiance to God and God alone. For the time of ignorance of God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The second thing that Paul does, which is shocking to you and I, is that he doesn't just call people to repent. It's like, hey, you need to stop worshiping there. You need to start here. But this idea that he actually draws a timeline and says, there's more than just right here and right now. Now is the time for repentance. But he immediately goes to the future tense, for you to think about what happens when you die. Paul is very strong at this point. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics would would say that their bodies just, just kind of went into the ground or evaporated or something like that. There was no afterlife. With Paul's message and with our message, there should be a sobriety about it. We should be sober minded that this world is, there's more to this world than what we see. He comes out pretty heavy and he says, there will be a judgment. And how we will be judged in righteousness is very clear in this moment. He says, for you, everyone to, be, to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And here's the key of the whole passage, by a man. The plan of salvation comes through a man, the man, the one man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance by uh, by raising him from the dead. The gospel message is devoid of all of its power. If you do all of that right and you forget about the one man, the man who has defeated death itself, both sin and the grave are nothing to Jesus and Jesus alone. God's ask us to be missionaries. And missionaries naturally just speak. We speak inside of a culture. Yes. We speak to real people. Yes. We speak about God and how glorious He is and how good He is. We also, we speak into the plan of salvation that has as its crux the person and work of Jesus Christ Himself. Those are the four things that Paul did. These are the four things that we were asked to do. So some things for you and I to consider is this. Like in verse 16, are you and I provoked by what we see in our city and in our culture? When's the last time you had your heart stirred? The injustice, the false worship. Are you provoked? Maybe we should stop there. Like in verse 22, do you find or ask questions or find these points or these, these ports of entry where, yeah, I see that you have an unknown God. Let me just tell you about that. And so as a good missionary, like asking good questions and having this ultimate solution for those things are very, very true. Like in verse 24, are you proclaiming the greatness of God to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. When's the last time you said something great about who God is? His creator, provider. And this is the harder part. But are you finding insufficiency in anything or everything but the gospel? There's no sports team that is as good as the gospel. There's no corporate ladder that is as good as the gospel. There's no achievement that is good as the gospel. There's even no, like, even if you go to, like, you deprave, like, uh, depravity. Like, there's, there's nothing that you could withhold from yourself that is greater than the gospel. So every worldview, whether you're Stoic or you're an Epicurean, everything will have insufficiency with it. And so we end today with a classroom of understanding these kind of spheres. But the question for all of us is, are we even speaking? This is how you speak. I think we have a long way to go in simply saying something just to keep on speaking. As we pray and as we close, the challenge this morning, this is how you do it. But the challenge for you and I is just to say something, to speak on behalf of God and on behalf of salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we see Paul do amazing work. And we see that uh, he lays out the plan of salvation in a wonderful and a beautiful way. That he meets people where they're at. He understands their questions. He points at your sufficiency. And he also points to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Jesus, we pray that as we close, that we too, that we want to be like Paul. We want to step into context in the marketplace, in academia, with our neighbors, and we want to say something about Jesus. Challenge us now to say something on your behalf. We ask this in your good name, amen.